0: If you would grab a Bible, let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18. We'll be studying from uh, this part of Scripture and this part of our worship this morning. 1 Kings chapter 18. Good to see you. We have visitors with us. We're thankful that you're here. Always want you to feel welcome and want to acknowledge the uh, sacrifice that you've made in planning to be here with us and how we appreciate that and especially what it says about your interest in spiritual things. So thank you for being here. 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to read beginning in verse 17. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. It says, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and follow the Baals. So Jesus encourages us to be like little children. But it's pretty clear that when Jesus tells us to be like little children, he is not saying that we need to be childish. He is saying there is some humility, there are some things that our little children demonstrate to us that we need to emulate. But Paul says something where he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Childishness is not a behavior that we are to emulate. So name-calling, sulking, being unable to handle adversity or unpleasantness. These are childish and not in a good way. And I want to talk for a few minutes about a man who kind of remained a child. Even when he got to be older, he still acted like a child. And because of that, his behavior really hampered his work as a leader in the nation. So what we're going to call this is the king who never grew up. We're going to talk about Ahab this morning. And when we talk about Ahab, what we're really talking about is a man who failed to develop a maturity of character. He never became the man he should have been because he remained in some of the most pivotal places in his development, a child. And maturity is one of those things that we all need, not just because it's what God expects of us, although it certainly is, but because it's also what other people need from us. We cannot remain children forever because the thing about children is other people have to constantly help them and move them along and clean up their messes and try to help them through their mistakes. If we can become mature, then we can bless others instead of being a drain on others. And you can see that in Ahab's life. So, maturity is what equips us to handle the difficult things of life, and that's where Ahab fails. And I want us to trace that in a few areas as we study his life for a few minutes this morning. So, to grab the full context of what we just read, this whole little, you know, argument spat between Ahab and Elijah, I think we need to go back to the beginning And the the beginning of the story of our little unhero, Ahab. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 16 for a moment. 1 Kings 16. In 1 Kings 16 and verse 30. Now, this is after Omri, Ahab's father, is described back in verse 25... ...as the one who did more evil than all who were before him. Okay, so that's his dad. And now, here comes Ahab. In verse 30, it says... Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That has to include his dad, right? And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And if you know anything about the history of Israel, the northern tribes, you know that that last statement is a big one. He did more to provoke Jehovah to to jealousy, to anger, than any of the other kings. And he says, it's interesting the way he puts it, the author, he says as if it were a light thing for him to follow the way of Jeroboam. Jeroboam is the one who put the golden calves in the northern and southern extremes of the northern kingdom so that the people wouldn't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship like Jehovah wanted. So it was one thing for him to perpetuate this false worship, but he goes further because he's not even worshiping Jehovah God. He marries a woman who is the daughter of Ethbaal. You wonder who she might be serving, right? Okay? And she encourages him to serve Baal. He builds a Baal. He builds an Asherah. He starts worshiping foreign gods on top of worshiping Jehovah God in this false way. So the, the picture that's painted here is a bad man marries a woman who makes him far worse. And he is going to be a real low point for the kingdom of Israel. So at this moment then along comes Elijah. Elijah. And Elijah comes into this scene where God's people are worshiping Jehovah in a wrong way and worshiping other gods that they shouldn't be doing at all. And Elijah begins to pray for a drought. And he begins to be known for this. In fact, uh, everybody knows Elijah is the cause of the drought. Now, Elijah is praying for a drought so that the people will change, particularly Ahab. But the people will change from this spirit that wants to depart from Jehovah. And so... Elijah is sustained by God. He actually flees the country and goes to a widow in Zarephath. And it comes time for him to return after a couple of years. And he comes into the land. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows he's behind the drought. And he comes to a man named Obadiah. We learn that Obadiah... uh, I'm in chapter 18 now. We're going to get there in just a minute. But Obadiah is a good man. He is part of the cabinet, so to speak, of of Ahab. And he has hid a hundred prophets of Jehovah when Jezebel started killing prophets of Jehovah. It tells you a little bit about how things are going in the land, Okay, that she is going around killing them, and there are a hundred of them that he, he saves. And Elijah comes to Obadiah and says, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here. And Obadiah says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not going to tell him you're here because then when he come back, you're going to be gone, and he's going to kill me. It says some good things about Ahab, doesn't it? I don't even want to report something that in the slightest bit might get him irritated because I'm going to be dead. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 18 now and verse 17. Finally, Ahab and Elijah meet after all this tension and all these years of drought. When Ahab saw Elijah, verse 17, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. All right, so... Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Isn't this amazing? Ahab blames Elijah. You're the problem. You're the reason we have a drought. And Elijah says, whoa, 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 whoa. The reason we have a drought is because of you. It's because you have led the people away from God and led them off to the Baals. So Elijah fires right back. So you see this scene, and I want you to think about it through the lens of childishness, okay? Because here... Ahab is not thinking at all about anything except Elijah's the problem. If you would quit this, then everything would be happy. All right, so that's, Eli- that's Ahab and Elijah. Now, I want you to see there is another scene that is very similar. Let's look in chapter 21, 1 Kings 21. Now, you know that Ahab and Elijah probably don't hang out on the weekends. They're not good friends. And yet... When when, uh, Ahab does something else awful that we'll talk about in a minute, Elijah comes to confront him. In verse 20, 1 Kings 21 and verse 20, Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So here Ahab is calling names again, troubler of Israel, O my enemy, and Elijah fires right back. Yeah, I have found you because you're going around killing people. And I got some things that Jehovah wants to say to you. So it's very personal with Ahab. Ahab hears and sees Elijah, and he is angry at Elijah because Elijah, he thinks, is the problem. So there is something more here. Here's what I want to say about these scenes. Sometimes we are the problem, and it is a childish reaction to always blame other people. That's what I want to highlight in those two little phrases. You might say, oh, well, that's just his words. He's just name-calling. But no, I don't think so. I think that Ahab, when he accuses Elijah of being the problem, is revealing this is really how he feels about it. Elijah is the one who deserves the blame, and I do not. I've done everything I should be doing. Elijah is the one who has made himself my enemy. Elijah is the one who is troubling Israel. He is blaming Elijah for all the problems, and he is not considering whether he... Is at fault. But Ahab reminds us sometimes we are the problem. Sometimes it is me, not the other person. And that I need to be able, if I'm going to be mature, to consider the idea that maybe I'm the issue and not just everyone else. So, always searching for someone else to take the blame, always saying that it's someone else who wronged me, they're the ones who are at fault, they are responsible, that is childish. Because it does not consider the reality that most problems have more complexity to it than someone else just wronging us. And very often, we contribute to a problem. So maturity means that I'm going to have to consider my contributions to a problem. It is very tempting to think that everyone else is doing wrong and we are doing right. It is very tempting To say that other people are the ones who are making us unhappy. It's their fault and not ours. And I am encouraging you to consider that that is a childish perspective. That I may cause problems and I almost certainly contribute to problems. So can I take a second and unpack that a little bit? Okay. That happens in marriages. Where we begin to blame our mate and say, you know what? If they would just be happier, if they would just do this for me, if they were just this... then then I would be happy. This is their fault. We have a miserable marriage, and it's because of them. And we do not consider that there is nothing in a marriage that is strictly one-sided. Instead, maybe I am contributing to, maybe I'm even the cause of the problem. Sometimes we are the problem. After all, if everyone goes around blaming everybody else, who actually is at fault? Can't we admit that sometimes we do wrong, and sometimes we say things we shouldn't, or we treat others the way that we shouldn't, and so we contribute to a problem. Sometimes we are the problem. That is a mature perspective. Sometimes we go from relationship to relationship, and we'll say things like, man, everybody has it out for me. Everywhere I go, there's a conflict. Maybe that's in our families, and we say, wow, I just don't understand why I can't get along with my family. Maybe that's at the workplace, where we say, man, This boss was bad. This boss is bad, but in a different way. And this boss is bad, but in a different way. And we just can't seem to be happy. Can we consider this? That sometimes it's me that's the problem and not just everybody else? Not that just every boss is terrible or every family member doesn't like me? That maybe I am the problem. You can keep applying that in other relationships you might have, other situations you might have. But I just want us to take a moment and say that if we're going to be mature, we've got to consider What is my role? And maybe I need to change my approach or my perspective or my behavior. That's something Ahab never got to. And I wonder if that didn't contribute significantly to the fact that he doesn't really do much changing throughout his life. Because he doesn't think he's the problem. He doesn't need to change. All right. So the second thing I want us to see from Ahab's life, we're going to just go ahead and put the point up here before we read the story, is that sometimes we don't get what we want. I think you probably know where I'm going if you know anything about Ahab. Uh, But let's look, let's start at the end of chapter 20. 1 Kings 20 and verse 43. The story starts when Ahab is already in a bad mood. We'll talk more about why in a minute. 1 Kings 20 and 43. And the king of Israel went down to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. Boy, that's a great trait in a king, isn't it? Vexed and sullen. He's mad. He's upset. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the place of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near to my house and I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I'll give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. So Ahab wants a vineyard. Naboth tells him no. And in fact, he has a good rightful reason. It's because this is my inheritance. Jehovah gave this to me. This is in my family. We're not getting rid of this land. So here is Ahab. He is a grown man, and he is vexed and sullen. And the details are just fascinating, aren't they? He lays down on his bed, and he turns his face away. Doesn't that sound like a little child to you? Okay, And he won't eat any food? No, I don't want any food. Okay, He's childish. Now, let me caution you. Before we chuckle too much, and I chuckled as I wrote this. Before we chuckle too much, haven't you done that before too? Haven't you had situations, even as an adult, where you were so disappointed or frustrated that you reacted in a way that you knew you shouldn't? In a childish way. You know, you got got angrier than you knew you should. Or maybe you said something you knew you shouldn't have said. And in that moment, that reaction, that disappointment, that frustration, that unfairness, it just kind of boiled up to the surface. I think we've all done that. So it's not so much that Ahab has a reaction he shouldn't have. I think we've all been there. It's what he does as a result of this that's really the significant problem in the story. But... I want you to see that there's no restraint. There's no, okay, I need to get over this. Instead, he kind of gives in to the childishness of this response. Let's look in verse 5. First Kings 21, 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel. Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in the city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead." As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So I think you have to understand a little bit about uh, the relationship between Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel is Ahab's fixer, right? He's got a problem. Jezebel is going to take care of it. It's a lot like David and Joab. You know, Joab is is sort of David's thug. When When David needs something done, tell Joab, and it's going to be ugly, but it's going to get done. If people need to die, he's the guy to do it. And so when Ahab tells Jezebel about the problem, he knows what's going to happen. When she says to him, hey, you're the king, let me take care of it. Those are some sinister words because Jezebel is an evil woman. She's going to do whatever she wants to do. ...that she thinks is going to succeed. So, Ahab knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, when Elijah confronts Ahab, there's none of this. You shouldn't have let Jezebel do this. He confronts Ahab. Ahab, you did wrong. You killed. You took possession. And in fact, you kind of notice that when after the scene is done and the man is killed... ...Ahab doesn't ask any questions. Wait, he's dead? What did you do? Instead, it's, oh, good, I got my vineyard. Guess he's dead. No more problems there. So, it's one thing to be disappointed. You know, you don't get a vineyard. You don't get the things that you thought you should deserve. But it's possible in our disappointment and frustration and anger that we do things to others that are shameful and hurtful and wrong. We respond out of that. And the core issue here is that sometimes we don't get what we want. Even the king. Even when we're nice, even when we make a good offer, even when we say, hey, if you want it this way, that's fine. If you want this, that's fine. I'll give you money for it. I'll give you a better land. Ahab really did go out of his way to make this work in a legitimate way. But sometimes you don't get what you want, even when you really want it. And there is maturity in being able to accept this, even when it disappoints us, to be able to say, you know what? I don't get everything I want. It is a childish attitude that says, no, but I want it, and I'm going to do what I have to do to take it. Now, in my mind, this links to a story. I don't know if you remember the story. It's kind of an ugly story from the time of David, where David's son, Amnon, became infatuated with his half-sister, Tamar. And he got so upset that, you know, he was just like Ahab is here. You know, he's not eating. He's kind of getting sick. And the reason is he can't have his half-sister, and so there is, just like Jezebel, comes to Ahab and says, hey, what's the problem? Why are you so upset? So in that story, Am- Amnon has a friend who comes to him and says, hey, well, why are you so sick? Why are you so upset? And he tells him about it. And that man helps him, Jonadab is his name, helps him to scheme a way to get Tamar. And, of course, that doesn't work. He ends up raping her. All of this ugly scene that happens because Amnon can't handle that sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you may want something, and it's just off limits for you. It is a mark of maturity to be able to accept it. And when we are not able to accept this truth, it leads to evil. I believe that has to be what's behind the commandments. You remember the command in the Ten Commandments that says, You shall not covet your neighbor's, and then there's a whole list. Your neighbor's wife, or ox, or donkey, or servant, or house. Okay? You know, you look at your neighbor's stuff and you say, man, I would really like that, whatever it may be. And he says, don't covet. It only leads to bad things. That's not yours. And so we have to sometimes accept the fact that we don't always get what we want. In fact, I, I've got to say, in studying this this week, of all the things Ahab does, this seems to be the one that makes God the maddest. Isn't that amazing? I mean, God, he's going after all these idols But this is the one where God sends Elijah to him after it's done and says, hey, guess what? The dogs are going to eat your kids. This is the one. God's angry because this is just evil to say, I'm just going to take and kill. All right, so that's all well and good when we talk about Ahab. What about you and me? We need to take a second and apply this. Sometimes other people are going to have things that we want Money and homes and cars, opportunities, respect, love, attention, children, a spouse. We're going to look at that and say, usually what we say when we get to this stage is we say, they don't deserve that. I do, they don't. It's not fair. But when we strip away all the pretext, really it's about, I want that and I can't have it. Sometimes if we allow that to to grow, we can kind of be overcome by that desire, like Ahab is here, where we're just so frustrated, and we fixate on it, and we focus on it, and, and suddenly our perspective is lost. There are always going to be other men or women in the world besides our husband and wife that we have no right to. And if we allow, we fixate on that other person and we say, you know what, I really want to be with that person instead of my husband or wife, we know what that will do to us. It will drive us to distraction and sometimes it will drive us to do evil. Sometimes we don't get what we want. In fact, it seems to me that when we start with this way of thinking, it really takes us away from being thankful for what we do have and all the blessings that we have and all that God has given us, we begin to say, no, I'm dissatisfied with all these things I have. How much did Ahab have? How many vineyards did he have? He's the king. And yet this one man telling him no is just too much for him. We all have things that we wish we had. Maybe even that we dream of. Maybe we wanted a different life or a different job to live in a different place, a different relationship with our parents. We wanted things to be different than they are. But maturity acknowledges sometimes we don't get what we want, and it's okay. I don't have to get upset. I don't have to get angry. I don't have to lash out. I don't have to become bitter. Maturity says I'm going to look at the things that I do have. I'm going to accept the way things are, and I'm going to move on with life. There is nothing good that comes from fixating on these differences. So if Ahab had learned that, perhaps... Things would have turned out differently for him. All right, we need to talk about a last thing that really is a major feature of the story of Abraham. Abraham. We're not talking about Abraham. Please don't turn to Abraham. We're talking about Ahab. And that is how Ahab interacts with the prophets. Because this is some interesting stuff. There are a lot of prophets that go and talk to Ahab from Jehovah. And sometimes uh, things go pretty well and other times not so well. Let's look in 1 Kings 20. So in 1 Kings 20, the setting here is Ahab is fighting against Syria, and a prophet of Jehovah comes to talk to him. 1 Kings 20 and verse 13, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the district. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, And they were 232. After them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. So do you notice Ahab's response? Ahab says, oh, I'm going to win. Okay, tell me exactly how. Who goes first? Okay, what are we going to... And then Ahab does exactly what the prophet tells him to do. And he wins. A little later, verse 22, Then the prophet came near the king of Israel and said to him, Come and strengthen yourself. Consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. Guess what? In the spring the king of Syria comes up against him, and they're ready. Because Ahab has been warned, and he listens to the prophet of Jehovah. But when he seizes the king of Syria, he does not kill him, and God is disappointed. He makes a covenant, a treaty with him, and sends him back home. Look down in verse 42, 1 Kings 20 and verse 42. He said to him, this is a prophet, He said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted for destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Remember we read that earlier? Okay, that's why he's vexed and sullen. He just had a prophet tell him off. He said, no, you were wrong about this. So I hope you get the feel here. The prophet says something good. Ahab, you're going to win. Ahab's two thumbs up. Yes, sir. Like those prophets... But the prophet tells him, you did bad. Ahab is vexed and sullen. He's angry. He doesn't like those messages. So, there is one scene that I think we need to talk about as we address this. And that is in chapter 21 when he is confronted by Elijah after he kills Naboth. In chapter 21 and verse 21, Elijah says... Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. So not only does Elijah tell him you are going to be punished, he says your line is going to be cut off. You're not going to be family of Ahab anymore. Well, how does Ahab respond to that awful prophecy? In verse 27... 1 Kings 21-27, When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishpite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This is really good for Ahab. Ahab humbles himself, he accepts the message, and he's willing to say, I want to do different, I want to change. And God is pleased with that. You can tell from God's response he's talking to Elijah about how good this is. The problem is, this doesn't seem to last. If this were the beginning of a change in Ahab, where the rest of his life he tried to follow Jehovah, we would be talking in a different sermon about him today. But he kind of goes back to the old ways. You see that in chapter 22. So in chapter 22, uh, you have this scene where Ahab king of the north, and Jehoshaphat, king of the south, are planning to go into a battle together. And so they get all the prophets, and they just come in like a stream. Oh, you're going to win. God's going to give you the battle. You're going to win. And uh, Jehoshaphat says, "Um, can we have a prophet of Jehovah? Because that's kind of the thing that we do. You know, we're kind of Jehovah's people. And uh, so uh, listen to to this response. Verse 7, 1 Kings 22 and verse 7. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good, prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. <laughs> Don't talk like that, Ahab. That's not nice. So Ahab says, yeah, we do have this one guy, but I can't stand him. Because he always says bad things about me. I only like prophets that say good things about me. So I don't want to hear it." And uh, boy, there's a lot of funny things. If you read through this context, Micaiah comes out and he kind of gives him the, oh yeah, you're going to win, king, you're going to win. Ahab says, come on, Micaiah, tell me the truth. And so this is what he says, verse 17. 1 Kings 22, 17. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Isn't that funny? He says, here's what I saw, Ahab. I saw a people without a leader. Leader's dead. Leader's gone. And Ahab says, Ahab does not say, oh, no, I'm going to die. Maybe we shouldn't go into this battle. Instead, Ahab says, see, told you so. Always has bad things to say about me. And Ahab, ironically, thinks he can kind of trick his way out of this. He kind of sets Jehoshaphat up (coughs) because Jehoshaphat looks like the king of Israel. He's all in his royal robes. Ahab goes into the battle dressed like a common soldier. But, of course, Ahab is killed, and Jehoshaphat is not. So, what can we make of that? Ahab's back and forth with the prophets. I, I just want to say this. Sometimes the message is unpleasant. Ahab is happy with the prophets when they bring him good news, but he's mad when they bring him bad news. He hates it. Or he responds in this ugly way where he's vexed and sullen. Believing the good and rejecting the bad is a childish attitude. As if we can close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears, and that will make the truth different. It is a mark of maturity to say, sometimes the truth hurts, but I want to hear it anyway. I need to know the truth Because the truth is true. If I'm going to die in this battle, I would like to know it. Don't just tell me I'm going to live and I'm going to win if it's not true. So maturity means that sometimes there's pain in the message, but that we accept it because we know it's meant for our ultimate good. Now let's think about what that means for you and me. Scripture tells us that there is a temptation for the people of God to want to hear things that will tickle our ears that will make us feel good, Okay, that will justify our behaviors we want to justify. And we're going to be tempted strongly toward that, to not hear the hard things God has to say to us. Paul says this is having itching ears, but maturity means that we fight that impulse and we say, I want the truth no matter what. Tell me what's true. So, sometimes that means about sermons and things that we hear, passages we read in Scripture... They will seem negative, and they will not be what we want to hear. But maturity says that's okay. Sometimes the message is unpleasant. Sometimes we're going to get bad news. Sometimes we're going to have hard conversations. Sometimes we're going to hear things that we don't like. But maturity accepts this. And in fact, maturity says that we're going to learn to treat one another with kindness even when it's unpleasant. Because we know this is good for us. This is the way the Lord disciplines us. So sometimes the message is unpleasant, but it is a mark of maturity to say, I want the message, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, because I want to know what's true. So you put all this together. And I want you to think about with Ahab and with you and me, that each one of these circumstances is a test of character when we discover that we might be the problem and we're thinking about who is responsible, am I responsible? It's a test of character to be able to say, I have done wrong. I have contributed. I need to change. It's a test of character when we don't get what we want and we have to decide in that moment, what are we going to do about that? Are we going to be able to move on from this or is this going to be an obstacle in our spiritual lives? It's a test of character when we hear a message that we don't like. Are we going to get mad at the messenger like Ahab are we going to try to discount the word that we don't like? Or are we going to accept it and be humbled by it and be changed by it? It's a test of character. And what happens with Ahab is he fails at every turn. Every test of character. He does not have the humility to continue to follow God. He never overcame his childishness. And I want to encourage each one of us to see that these attitudes are challenging because they demand that we grow deeper that we mature, that we put aside our own egos, and that we follow God. I appreciate your attention this morning. We'll be dismissed for our classes.